Now, I get people will be anxious about AI for all sorts of different reasons, and that's why I'm giving this speech today and why we're taking the actions that we are to give people the reassurance that we are going to be able to keep them safe and ensure that our country can actually benefit from AI and something that our children and grandchildren will enjoy a better future as a result of. Hi, you're listening to the International Risk Podcast. This podcast is for CEOs, board members, risk and compliance officers, security advisors, and anyone interested in improving operations. On this podcast, we hear from the traditional to the wacky. From renowned risk management experts to Red Bull daredevils, there is something to learn about the way we perceive, manage, and mitigate risk from all of our guests. Your host, Dominic Bowen, will ask the questions that you all want the answers to. If you know Dominic, then you know he is well acquainted with risk. His 20-year career has seen him successfully establish operations in some of the most complex environments around the world. Dominic has spent most of his career establishing large and successful operations in places like Haiti, Syria, Sudan, Iraq, Lebanon, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and so many other high-risk and medium-risk locations. Joined by our excellent guests, he'll reveal innovative ideas on how you can ensure your organisation thrives in areas with high risk. Hi, I'm Dominic Bowen, and I'm the host of the International Risk Podcast. Today, we'll explore some of the opportunities and risks when data, technology, and healthcare intersect. Today, we're joined by Brio Lehman. He's a lecturer at University College London. Before taking up his current post at UCL, Brio was a postdoctoral research associate in statistical machine learning at the Big Data Institute and the Department of Statistics at the University of Oxford. Brio's primary research area is health data science, and more specifically, he has an interest in learning about statistical methods of health equity. He's previously spoken about AI in healthcare and his concerns regarding the potential risks of artificial intelligence to exacerbate health inequalities. We're very excited to have you on the podcast today, Brio. Thank you, Dominic. Very pleased to be here. Well, Brio, it's great to have you on the International Risk Podcast. But before we dive into the specific opportunities and the risks associated with artificial intelligence, I'd love to hear a little bit more about health inequality and how you got into that. And how did you find your way into studying and working in the area of health inequality? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a bit of a roundabout route, if I'm perfectly honest. I'm a a mathematician and statistician by training. And one of the nice things about being a statistician, this is a quote from John Tukey, famous for the box plot. He said that one of the best things about being a statistician is that you get to play in everyone else's backyard. So, you know, you, you have all these technical skills that you can apply ultimately data is data and you get to choose you know what application areas you get to focus on so i I started off looking at data for neuroimaging during my phd and and that was wonderful and then as a research associate at oxford i was working with genomic data and this is where I, i first got really interested in issues to do with inequalities so one of the key problems or challenges with genomic data is that the vast majority of human genetic data that's available to date is from people of european ancestry so roughly 90 percent of human genetic data is from people of European ancestry, despite that only making up about 16% of the global population. So you have a a really big issue of bias in genomic data sets. And some of my research was looking, what can we do with the data that we have available to kind of maximize the benefit for people of non-European ancestry? Then COVID hit. 
And everyone who had, you know, any expertise with data started working on COVID problems. And I was seconded to the UK Health Security Agency to support with statistical modeling for the COVID response. And that included performing some kind of in-depth statistical analyses of the differential impact of COVID according to socioeconomic status and ethnicity, amongst other things. So very, very different applications, but both thinking about inequalities in different settings. And that really kind of piqued my interest in issues to do with health inequalities. So as I said, very, very different application areas, but actually the fundamental problems from a statistical perspective are quite similar. Issues to do with bias of data or lack of diversity in data. And that's really led me to go down this route of studying health inequalities more broadly, regardless of whether it's genomics or COVID or, you know, in clinical trials, for example, is another interest of mine. And that's led me to, to where I am today at UCL. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I wonder, Brio, what would you identify as the biggest issues preventing health equality today? Health and health equity is such a complex topic and there are so many different factors at play, whether it's, you know, socioeconomic, cultural, biological. I think the most stark inequalities, at least within the UK and most other countries, are inequalities along the axes of socioeconomic status. So there's a, a really stark statistic in the UK that difference in life expectancy between the most deprived areas and the most wealthy areas in the UK is a difference of about 20 years, which is a wild statistic. And even within, within cities, you have huge disparities in life expectancy. So for example, in Glasgow, there's a subway line that goes from the northwest to the southeast, the northwest Jordan Hill being the most affluent area to Bridgeton being the least affluent area. And as you go along each stop along this tube line, the life expectancy decreases by two years. So even within the space of less than 10 miles, you have these huge disparities in life expectancy, which is largely to do with socioeconomic status and deprivation. I mean, that's amazing. That's an amazing statistic. And I know in Australia, we have some really shocking and very sad statistics about the life expectancies between the Caucasian population and Indigenous Australians. And, mm. you know, you really scratch your head and I know different governments and actors have been trying for decades to try and shorten that gap and to try and provide better health care to all communities. But there hasn't been significant successes yet. But what you're talking about seems even more stark. You know, we're not talking about populations living in remote Mode Australians. So you're talking about the difference in, in train stations. What's the cause? I mean, we talk broadly about, you know, socioeconomic indicators and influences, but, but what does that mean on a practical level? Because surely two kids that live 10 miles away have the access to the same supermarkets, the same sporting fields, the same schools. You know, what's contributing to this? That's a very good question. And I don't think there's a simple answer. I think there are many, you know, factors which influence health. So one thing is access to healthcare and trust in the healthcare system. So there are some communities who are less likely to want to go to their doctor for whatever reason. There are issues to do with, you know, diet, eating well in the UK. I don't know about Australia, but eating well in the UK can be very, very expensive and it can be much, much cheaper to go to your fast food restaurant, which is not necessarily the best for your health. And then there are all sorts of issues to do with pollution in the UK. So issues to do with lung cancer and have it being at more risk of developing certain diseases because of the environmental impact. And so these are factors which are all kind of associated with socioeconomic status and deprivation, all of which can kind of contribute to poorer health across the board. I think it really depends on a specific disease or the specific condition where it's going to matter which particular factor, but all these things in aggregate are leading to poorer outcomes for the most deprived. You know, that's very, very significant risks, both today and obviously for the people being affected, but you can see the very significant social and economic risks at large as those things continue. 
You've talked before about artificial intelligence and the potential influence that can have on health indicators, particularly for women and ethnic minorities. Can you explain and maybe expand for our listeners on why these specific groups might be more vulnerable to artificial intelligence-driven inequalities, especially looking at the huge data sets and methodologies we have access to today that we see as being what's really revolutionized access to artificial intelligence for everyone, you know, through platforms like chat? GPT. So how come these health inequalities are potentially going to get worse with the inclusion of artificial intelligence? This is a really important question. I mean, I'm an optimist in the sense that I think AI has a really important role to play in healthcare. And some of these technologies, particularly in radiology, have really shown great impact in being able to you know, diagnose tumours and analyse x-rays, things like this. One of the main issues is that these AI systems are trained on the data that we have available today. So I think a useful analogy is a video game, let's say Tetris. So an AI system might have played, you know, many, many Tetris games, thousands and thousands of games of Tetris, all based on these like combinations of, you know, five, five block pieces. Suddenly, if you were to introduce a six block piece into the system, the AI system would bug. It would be like, oh no, gosh, what, what do I do with this? I, I have no idea. And eventually it'll mess up and it will lose the game. You know, if you were to keep on introducing these six block pieces into the system, then eventually the AI would learn. The problem is that it's not seen enough of these six block pieces, and so it doesn't know what to do, and so it will perform more poorly on those games. So I think that's a useful analogy to bear in mind when thinking about AI in healthcare systems and the potential to exacerbate inequalities. The biomedical data that we have today, there's a severe underrepresentation of people from ethnic minorities. And historically, and this is less the case today, but historically, uh, women have been underrepresented in biomedical data sets as well, in particular clinical trials. There's a, a great book by Caroline Criado Perez called Invisible Women, that I'd highly recommend, which is all about the underrepresentation of women, not just in biomedical data, but across society and the implications that that has for gender equality. So in the context of AI healthcare, if you have a system, there's a good example of using AI to diagnose particular diseases using chest x-rays. And a study a couple of years ago found that those who were from ethnic minorities and women were significantly underdiagnosed with respect to, say, you know, white men as a result of this AI being trained on the available data, which didn't have enough representation from these historically minoritized groups. Yeah, thanks so much. And I think the point that you just raised in is really, really interesting. We we know that many clinical trials historically have had underrepresentation when it comes to women and even equipment. When we look at uh, bulletproof vests that the military use or, or the police use are often designed by men for men. And then as a result, when women go to put on the bulletproof vests or when women seek healthcare, when the data used to design the appropriate response has been based on male patients and, and males in clinical trials, yeah, the outcomes is perhaps not unsurprisingly not as effective as it should be for women. So I think that makes a lot of sense. But are we seeing efforts to try and recalibrate, to fix that balance, to, as you said, to bring in more six pieces into the uh, Tetris game? Yes, there are some targeted efforts in specific domains. I mentioned genomics and in genomics, there's a huge push globally actually to improve the representativeness of genomic data sets. So even just here in the UK, the Genomics England, which is the national genomics program, has a diverse data program, which has been tasked with going out and improving the diversity of genomic data in the UK. And there are other global initiatives such as H3 Africa, which are doing similar things on the continent of Africa. 
I just want to go back quickly to the example that you gave of bulletproof vests and women. And there's a really salient example from COVID, which you know reached the news, at least here in the UK, which was the issue of pulse oximeters, which are these medical devices used to measure blood oxygen levels which you tag on to your finger and it tells you how much oxygen level. So you can imagine how this would be important in the context of COVID where people are suffering from respiratory symptoms and it's very important to have a gauge of how much oxygen people have in the blood. What was found soon into the pandemic was that these pulse oximeters were less accurate on people with darker skin. And so that meant that people were getting inaccurate oxygen readings at critical times in their disease onset. And in the UK, this is quite understandably a scandal. And this led to the health secretary at the time commissioning a review into equity in medical devices, which is ongoing. And the scope of this review is to understand what medical devices, and this includes clinical AI algorithms, what medical devices are being used throughout the NHS in the UK today, and to understand the kind of equitable performance of these devices. Isn't that amazing that it takes something like the COVID pandemic to bring that to light, that something that nearly all of us have had when you go to hospital, you know, the nurse puts that on your finger and, you know, takes your heart rate and does a few other basic things. Isn't it amazing that that wasn't picked up earlier? Yeah, that's right. It blows my mind, to be perfectly frank. And I think it's something where you mentioned about, you know, male designers designing things for men. I don't know who was in the team designing this medical device, but I suspect it wasn't the most diverse team, if that reflects, you know, historical patterns in research and design of these technologies. And I think it just goes to show the importance of not just having diversity in our data sets, but also having diversity in the teams that are developing these tools, which are ultimately going to serve everyone in the population. Yeah, that's such a great point. And we talk about that a lot on the International Risk Podcast about the inherent biases we have when we're collecting information, when we're assessing risk. And even if we start it by going, okay, what are the biases we have? Quite often you'll look around the room and it will be a bunch of 30, 40, 50 year old white males. You know, even if we're talking about biases, there's some things we're not going to get past unless we fix this problem to start with. So being really deliberate on who's in the team is a really great first step. The UK's healthcare service, the NHS, announced in July that they were going to increase funding for artificial intelligence developments and diagnostics. I wonder, do you welcome this development? Do you think it's needed? Do you think this is a good step? Yeah, absolutely. I think the government has really supported development in AI technologies in healthcare since the start of the NHS AI lab back in, I think, September 2020. So since then, I think they've spent around 120 million on different AI technologies in healthcare. And there's two recent funding rounds that they've announced. One is specifically for research in AI healthcare technologies and another fund, which is for NHS trusts to spend on AI diagnostic tools. So to actually deploy into the NHS today. Two of the tech diagnostic tools that they're hoping to fund, one is on chest x-rays. So I mentioned this example earlier about using chest x-rays to diagnose uh, particular diseases. And the other one is stroke diagnosis. So to understand early on whether someone's about to suffer a stroke. So this is great news. I think these are areas where AI can play an important role. And, you know, there's evidence to show that they're just as effective or even more effective than human doctors in these particular cases. My optimism comes with a note of caution is that often these AI tools, as I mentioned, do not perform nearly as well in people who have been historically minoritized. So I'd like to see that some of these funds are directed towards issues of equity and in particular audit. So to make sure that there's an understanding of the differential performance across specific subgroups of these AI tools across different subgroups of the population to make sure that, you know, if there is 
poor performance in particular subgroups that we know that there's poor performance and that this comes with like a caution note with these AI tools so that doctors aren't blindly relying on these tools and leading to poorer outcomes for these minority groups. Yeah, that's really important. I think the idea of monitoring performance and then flagging poor performance and at least at a minimum bringing awareness to it but then ideally mitigating that is so critical and I note that one area of interest for the NHS AI lab is actually AI ethics so hopefully that does include monitoring and and identifying areas where AI is perhaps leaping forward in some areas but perhaps lagging in others and as you've said many many times further spreading the health inequality gaps and so I wonder Noting the conversation we've had and the risks we've discussed about artificial intelligence and perhaps broadening that gap of health inequality, what do you think can be done to mitigate this? You know, how can we ensure that as artificial intelligence is integrated more and more across healthcare, what can we do to make sure that healthcare is not just improved, but it's also equalized across all subgroups? I think there's a, a couple of things that I'd like to mention here. So I've, I've already mentioned audits, and I think these are absolutely crucial. I think there needs to be regular and frequent audits of AI tools, both pre-deployment to understand what's the current performance of these AI tools before they get implemented into the healthcare system, and also post-deployment. So on a regular basis, making sure that there aren't other data biases that are being snuck in through the back door that these AI tools are not picking up. I think another key component of the equitable deployment of these AI tools is for them to have an honest assessment of when the AI tool is uncertain. Okay, so I mentioned this video game analogy. If an AI system sees a data point which is not similar to anything that it's seen before, often it'll just spit out a random answer with no hint of how confident it is in that answer. And it might as well be flipping a coin. What I'd like to see is not just spitting out this random answer, but an honest assessment of, okay, I'm spitting out this random answer, but actually I have no idea what I'm saying. And that goes to tell the clinician who's making the decision at the end of the day that, okay, I can't rely on the output of this particular AI tool for this particular patient. That tells the clinician that, okay, maybe we need to look a bit deeper into this particular case, run more tests, run again more images. And in that sense, I think there is a role for AI to improve equity in the sense that it can improve resource allocation to focus more efforts onto those who maybe have been historically underserved. One more mitigation that I'd like to mention is the use of health data standards. And this is actually a project that was funded through the NHS AI Lab, which is a project called Standing Together. And the idea is to health data sets which are being used to train AI algorithms that they come with some sort of data standards report to tell the clinician, to tell the developer what data has gone in to train this particular AI system. And so this can flag up at the very start whether a particular AI tool is appropriate for use in particular populations. These, I think, are very important initiatives to make sure that the deployment of AI tools in the healthcare system don't exacerbate inequalities. Yeah, when receiving information or recommendations from AI tools, wouldn't the confidence interval be a great addition? It comes up as we're super confident this is factual, or as you said, we're basically tossing a coin here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a challenge here, which is as a statistician, I'm very comfortable with, you know, different quantification of uncertainty. Most clinicians don't know what a confidence interval is. And so if you give the clinician a 95% confidence interval, they're not going to know what to do with that. And so there's, I think, a really important translational project is how do you communicate this uncertainty to the clinician to help them make a better clinical decision. I had a conversation with a doctor just a week ago about the use of clinical prediction models in the NHS. And 
there are a number of quite popular prediction models, for example, to screen for lung cancer. So to determine what risk someone is for, for developing lung cancer. And there are an array of prediction models that are available for clinicians to use, some which are more complex than others. And what the clinician said to me was that actually the clinicians will use these prediction models, but only really listen to them if it kind of agrees what they expected anyway. And this kind of use and interaction with the prediction model isn't recorded anywhere. And so there's a really interesting effect, kind of confirmation bias of the prediction model being used only to kind of, you know, support what decision the clinician was going to make anyway. These are really subtle, nuanced effects where if people are using prediction models in practice, it's going to be very difficult to disentangle this effect if we're doing some post-hoc analysis or audit of the prediction model. And so that's where it's really important to include the clinicians in that auditing process to make sure that, you know, the system is actually being used in the way that we think it's being used and actually not in other ways that are more pernicious. Yeah, definitely. Confirmation bias is... uh... Sometimes humorous, sometimes quite scary, but it's always prevalent, isn't it? We all do that when reading the news and speaking to friends and family, and it definitely creeps into the workplace as well. Whilst recognizing all the risks you've highlighted today, you know, I think you and myself remain really excited about the current and future benefits of artificial intelligence. When you look at particular regions or countries that are setting a good example or where new technology is being developed in healthcare that promotes inclusivity and addresses potential disparities. What are you most excited about when you when you look at the opportunities within the healthcare? That's a great question. The thing which I'm most excited about is the use of AI systems in low resource environments. And so I think this is true of healthcare systems across the world, but particularly in the UK, they're overstretched. Doctors are struggling to cope with the number of patients coming through the system and AI systems really have a potential to kind of relieve some of that burden. That's not to say that AI tools will replace doctors. AI tools, I think, will you know, supplement and complement doctors to deliver effective healthcare. And I think where there's, I think, really exciting potential for AI to help in the service of health equity is to focus those scarce resources onto those people who have been historically minoritized or those people who are living in more deprived areas who might not necessarily have access to the best doctors or the best healthcare. And that's where I think if we can use the extra capacity that AI tools can deliver in healthcare and shift that focus over to those who are poorest off, then I think that's where I'm most optimistic that AI can have a positive impact on health equity. Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense and should be really exciting for all of us, really. And that's why today we're investing a further £100 million to accelerate the use of AI on the most transformational breakthroughs in treatments for previously incurable diseases. Now I believe nothing in our foreseeable future will be more transformative for our economy, our society and all our lives than this technology. Thank you very much for coming on the International Risk Podcast today, Bria. Thank you very much, Dominic. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a very interesting conversation with Brio Lehman, lecturer at University College in London. I really appreciated hearing his thoughts on the risks and opportunities of artificial intelligence within healthcare. Please go to wherever you download your podcast and give this podcast a five-star review. Today's podcast was coordinated and produced by Lottie James. I'm Dominic Bowen, host of the International Risk Podcast. Thank you.
You've been listening to the International Risk Podcast hosted by Dominic Bowen. Please go to wherever you download your podcasts and give this podcast a five-star review. Your positive reviews on this podcast and subscribing to future downloads is critical for our success. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend about this podcast. Consider if you know someone that would appreciate or benefit from today's conversation and send them this podcast right now. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for your fix of risk-related stories.